Let's open our Bibles to the book of Isaiah, please. Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah 7. And then we're going to also look at Isaiah 9. Isaiah 7 as well as Isaiah 9. Just a few verses, but familiar to us for such a season as this. Let us look to God's Word together this morning. Isaiah 7 and verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now go to chapter 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Our Christmas series this December is called The History of Christmas. And with emphasis on the His, the history, His story, because that is exactly what Christmas is. Christmas is His story. It is the story of Jesus. We began this brief little series last Sunday, and we saw together that the story of Christmas began all the way back in the book of Genesis. We often like to begin in the Gospels, but in reality, the story of the world, the story of Christmas, it all began in the very beginning. God created this world in perfection. And he did so for his glory and pleasure, including us, human life. But the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, they, they failed to believe God's word and trust God's plan. Satan came into the Garden of Eden and tempted them both to doubt God's word and to question God's goodness to them. And as a result, Adam and Eve yielded to the temptation that Satan brought before them. They ate of the fruit that had been forbidden, and they watched as their sin changed everything around them, including themselves. A world that was absent of sin and sorrow and suffering and chaos and death are now cursed by sin and all of its consequences. But... God had a plan. He had an answer for the sin that had now come into the world and had brought this suffering and death upon all mankind. God said straightforwardly to Satan, the serpent, there in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15. He said to him, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. In that promise, God not only declared war against Satan, but church, he also declared victory over Satan. 
that through the seed of the woman will come a Savior who through suffering, even though he will die and be buried, he will rise again. And in so doing, he will crush the head of Satan and provide forgiveness of sin and eternal life to any and all who trust in him. What does that have to do with Christmas? It has everything to do with Christmas. Because Christmas is the fulfillment of this promise in the birth of Jesus Christ. If we're going to talk about the history of Christmas, we cannot talk about it without the beginning of the world. God's perfect creation being marred by sin, but yet God in his love, grace, and mercy providing an answer for his creation, you and I, his kingdom, to be redeemed through the promised seed of a woman. Now, our text today gives us another chapter in the history, the his story of Christmas. Namely, the prophecies of the Old Testament that declared God's plan of fulfilling the promise that he made in Genesis 3.15. And so as we study through the Bible, we see that little by little, prophecies here and pictures there began to unfold what God had promised he would do. And I think it's very important at this point when we talk about the story of Jesus and the story of the Bible and the history of Christmas that we understand something important about our Bibles. And that is the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, is one big story. It's important that you know that as you read your Bible and as you study your Bible, because I think sometimes we treat the Scriptures as if it is some type of encyclopedia, a a tool accessible to us for the various needs that we have in life. If we're facing fear, then let's go find all of the verses on fear and apply them to our lives. If we're facing marital conflict, then let's go find all the verses that deal with marital conflict in a apply them to our lives. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but if that is your only perspective of the Bible, then you're looking at the Bible the wrong way. Because the Bible was never intended to be an encyclopedia for us to just access, to pull off the shelf every time we have this need or that need. No, the Bible is something entirely different. What it actually is, is a story book. That is everything written tells us the story of how God came to rescue man. The same is true about the Old Testament. Everything written for us in the Old Testament is a story of how God fulfilled the promise that he made in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 3.15, that he would bring into the world a Savior for sinners. So as we read the rest of Genesis, and we go on to Exodus, and then Leviticus, and then quickly through Numbers and then Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges and all down the line, what we're reading here is one big story of how God fulfilled the promise that he made at the beginning of the world. This is why we need the whole Bible in order to understand the whole story. You've heard me say this on so many different occasions. You cannot come into the Bible and deal with one testament and get the whole picture. It's a two-act play. 
You're going to a play, you got to stay for both acts in order to get the whole deal. And that is true when it comes to the Bible. You cannot walk in just on the New Testament and think you'll figure it out. No, without the Old Testament, the New Testament means nothing. And without the New Testament, the Old Testament makes very little sense at all. We need the whole Bible in order to understand the whole story. Such is the case with Jesus. You say, well, Pastor, if I'm looking at Jesus, then I start in the Gospels. No, if you're looking at Jesus, you start in Genesis. Because the story of Jesus is not just a New Testament story. It is an Old Testament and a New Testament story. They all work together. It's one big story. And that's why the history of Christmas causes us to spend so much time even in the Old Testament. Griffith Thomas, who was a 19th century pastor and scholar out of the Church of England, I just actually discovered this week, I did not know this, but in 1924, he was one of the co-founders of one of the largest seminaries in the world, Dallas Theological Seminary in Dallas, Texas. He's written a lot of material on the Bible and other helpful things in relation to theology and doctrine, and I came across a statement of his this week that was just so wonderfully helpful as it relates to our understanding of the whole Bible and the story of Jesus. I want you to listen to me very carefully what he says here. He says, it, speaking of the Old Testament, it is a book, now listen, of unfulfilled prophecies, unexplained ceremonies, and unsatisfied longings. I want you to think about that for a moment. He's talking about just the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a book of unfulfilled prophecies, unfulfilled prophecies, unexplained ceremonies, and unsatisfied longings. That is, if all we had was the Old Testament, it means nothing. But, he continues, all of which, that is, these unfulfilled prophecies, these unexplained ceremonies, these unsatisfied longings, all of which are resolved in the New Testament's focus on Jesus Christ, who fulfills in his life the prophecies who explains in his death the ceremonies and who satisfies in his resurrection the longings. That is so wonderfully helpful. Here's what he's saying about our Bibles. Everything that is unclear, unexplained, unenfilled in the Old Testament is completely understood when we look at it through the gift of Jesus Christ Because the life of Jesus fulfills the prophecies. The death of Jesus helps us to understand all the ceremonies. And the resurrection of Jesus is the one who comes to satisfy our deepest heart's longing. You see, we cannot forget this morning that the Bible is a story. And it is a story about Jesus saving sinners. That is the story of the Bible. It is the story of Jesus saving sinners. Everything in it is about him. And you know that I'm very passionate about this as a Bible teacher. Because so often we look into the Bibles and we try to find ourselves when that was never what God intended. Now, is it a mirror that reads us? Yes. But the Bible is a book about God. I am not David in the story of David and Goliath. Jesus is David who defeated death in the face. 
We are not Noah compelled to build an ark of great establishment to God. No, Jesus is Noah. Jesus is the one who provides an ark of safety against God's judgment and God's wrath. And we can go story after story after story after story. When we look through the scriptures for what it is, a story about Jesus, then it is Jesus we will see throughout every page of his word. I mean, don't take my word for it. Listen to what Jesus said himself about this. Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Those are the words of Jesus. He said everything in the Pentateuch, everything in the law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, everything in the prophets, everything in the Psalms. Do you know what that was about, Jesus said? Jesus said that was all about me. It was to show you me that I am the fulfillment of everything God has given to us. And it's at that very point in Luke chapter 24 that in the very next verse, verse 45, it says the disciples actually then began to comprehend the scriptures. And that's the phrase that is used there. When Jesus told them that everything in the Old Testament was about him, it's like the light bulb went off. They actually began to understand. They actually began to comprehend because they no longer looked at it in terms of themselves, but they looked in it to see Jesus because that's what it is. Every book of the Old Testament, all 39 of them, is a book about Jesus. Jesus. John 5, 39, Jesus said, These scriptures, they testify. Of me. Of me. And so when we talk about the history of Christmas, when we go all the way back to the beginning, who is he talking about in Genesis 3.15? He's talking about Christ. And we go further on and we study here in the prophecies of Isaiah. Who is he talking about? He's talking about Christ. Everything. Everything is about Christ. And it would help you dramatically in your own relationship with the Lord and your time with Him if you would stop reading the Bible as an encyclopedia and start reading it as a story. A story. The greatest story ever told. I was watching a program with my wife this week and was reminded of a children's book called The Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, some of you have it and use it with your children. In fact, I was just at a uh, violin concert last night with my niece, and in the church I saw several of these books out on their counter for their children to use. I highly commend them to you. It was written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. And if you'll allow me, I want to quote from a children's book this morning to help us better understand what I'm trying to say. In fact, I probably should quote more from children's books <laughs> to help us understand a little bit of what God is trying to say to us. It's wonderfully laid out to remind us about the story of the Bible, the history of Christmas. She says at the very beginning, introducing the book, she says, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything, to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales 
that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. That is such an important line. Oh, children need to hear this. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. Friends, we cannot miss this. The story of the Bible is the story of Jesus, and it is the story of how God saves sinners. So when we journey through the Scriptures, we see the story of Jesus unfolding right before our very eyes and how God orchestrated all of humanity to bring Christ into the world. We see the work of Jesus pictured in the stories. And like today's text, we see the coming of Jesus predicted through the prophecies. You see, God said to the first man and woman, a Savior is going to come, and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. Now, throughout history, as recorded for us in the Bible, God unfolds this story. A little here and a little there to show us how he will come and why he will come. Let's consider one of those today. Write write down, number one, just the signs given. The signs given. We find this sign that I'm referencing today in chapter 7 and verse 14 in Isaiah. Isaiah 7, 14, we read it a moment ago. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign, a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Here's a sign. Here's, here's how you know that this is the seed of the woman that I promised in Genesis chapter 3. A virgin is going to conceive. She's going to bear a son and will call his name Emmanuel. Now this is only one sign or one prophecy that was given to us in the Old Testament about the birth of Christ. There are so many others. Time would never allow me in one setting like this to go through every single prophecy. We see the first one in Genesis 3.15. God saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and of her seed will come a Savior who will crush your head. That's, that's prophecy number one, the promise that a Savior is coming. It doesn't take you just a few chapters later. You get to Genesis chapter 12. And God says to Abraham, he makes him a promise. He says, Abraham, it's going to be through your Seed, that that is your great, 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 great grandchild is going to be the one. He's going to come through you because it's through your seed that the entire world will be blessed. It's another prophecy. You fast forward through all of these in the Old Testament, you find one after another God saying, this is who's going to come. This is how he's going to come. This is why he's going to come. There are some, however, that speak specifically of this time of year that we celebrate Christmas in relation to the birth of Jesus. Uh, not only Isaiah 7.14, but Micah comes to mind. Micah 5.2. The minor prophet book, but here's what he says in Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem. He's making a prophecy about the town of Bethlehem. He says, you, Bethlehem, though you are little, little among 
thousands in Judah. Yet out of you will come forth to me the one who will be the ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old and from everlasting. You, Bethlehem. This is where we get our Christmas carol, oh, little town of Bethlehem. The prophecy in the Old Testament was you. you you're, you're small, you're little, you're insignificant. Now, if you visit Bethlehem today, it's not so small. In fact, I, I, last time I was there, I think I saw a Best Buy in the middle of the town of Bethlehem. And I'm not talking about Pennsylvania. I'm talking about Bethlehem, Israel. It's, uh, it's a lot different today than it was in these days. But in these days of Christ's birth, it was a small, insignificant, little town. And the prophecy is that though you are small, though you are little, though you are insignificant to the rest of Judah, it is out of you that the Savior is going to be born. So when the wise men came looking for Jesus in Matthew chapter 2, they told Herod that they were going to look for him in Bethlehem. Why? Because that's exactly what the prophecy said. It was a sign. This is where he will be born, and that is where he was born. Another one would be Hosea. Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, it says, When Israel was a child, now this is God speaking. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. On the surface, you might think this is somewhat of a contradiction because it was out of Bethlehem that Jesus came. What does it mean here? Out of Egypt, I will call my son. Well, they didn't know it then, but it was fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2. When on the account of Herod's murderous decree that all the boys two years and younger would be killed, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to where? To Egypt. And there they stayed until it was safe to return. Listen to what Matthew 2.14 says. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt, I have called my son. It's another prophecy fulfilled. There are others, many others, examples of signs that the Old Testament prophecies declared concerning the coming of Jesus, the promise in Genesis and the prophecies throughout the remainder of the Old Testament. And Isaiah seven fourteen is one of those. And it was fulfilled. Let me read to you the fulfillment of it in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 22. The Bible says, so all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Oh, not just any child. No, the virgin is going to bear the Christ child, the seed of the woman. This is he, the one that God promised in Genesis chapter 3, the one that God promised in Genesis chapter 12, the one that God prophesied through Isaiah in chapter 17. This is he, he who is promised to come. Now, what do all these signs tell us? The one, they tell us that God keeps his promises. And in every instance of God making a promise in the old, we see it fulfilled in the new. And the Bible says that he is the same God. He never changes. It's a reminder to us today that even in our lives, though we walk through weary days, that the same promises God makes 
are ours for the receiving. God never goes back on his promises. He never changed his mind in relation to being our Savior and our Redeemer. This is what he promised. This is what he predicted. And this is what he fulfilled. It tells me something else. It tells me that God's plan has always been to save sinners through the gift of himself. It's always been that. It's hard for us to grasp this sometimes. Because the scripture is very clear that even before the Garden of Eden itself, God had already foreordained and decreed that Jesus would come in this way. How do we wrap our heads around that? Because we're reactionary people for the most part. Our decisions are often on the basis of a reaction. And so sometimes we think, all right, uh, God created everything perfectly. Adam and Eve did their thing. And so God's promise to send a Savior was reactionary. But it was always his plan. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1. Speaking of Jesus, 1 Peter chapter 1.20. He, Jesus, indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. This whole plan with Jesus, it was foreordained before the world was ever created, but he is now manifested to you in these last days. For you who through him believe in God. Now this brings us hope because God's plan has always been To save his people. His plan has always been to manifest himself to us. To be our substitute. To become our sacrifice. To lay down his life for the sin that we brought into this world. He always keeps his promises. He's always had a plan to save sinners. These are the signs given But then write down, secondly, the son given. The son given. And that's what jumps us over to Isaiah chapter 9. They're so close together. It's hard not to pair them up in a message like this. You have 714, the signs. 714 is representing a lot of signs. And then we come to chapter 9 and we see the, the son to be given. The son to be given. Unto us a child is born. Unto us. A son is given. Does it feel like Christmas to you right now? That's the question that Kathleen asked me this week as we were sitting in our living room looking at the Christmas tree and probably watching an episode of Jeopardy. It tells you how old I'm getting. I find delight in Jeopardy and Will of Fortune at 7 o'clock during the week. Thank you, Curtis. Puts me in good number. She said, does it feel like Christmas to you? I'll be honest, there's times it does feel like Christmas. There's times it doesn't feel like Christmas at all, especially when it's 75 degrees outside. I don't even know why we have this fire going. But let me ask you a question. What do you think the first Christmas actually felt like? Because when we ask that question, does it feel like Christmas, our minds are automatically going to some type of nostalgia. You know, if you grew up in the, in the north or in a very wintry place, maybe Christmas to you is a lot of snow and that never happens around here. It would take a literal Christmas miracle for that to happen. 
So it's not snowing. So maybe it doesn't feel like Christmas. Maybe, maybe, maybe when we say things like that, we're thinking of, of just sentimentality. You know, the, the snowmen, the reindeer, the songs playing in the grocery store, Christmas vacation over and over and over again. There are things that our mind causes us to feel Christmas, but let's just be honest. What did Christmas feel like when these prophecies were made? What did Christmas feel like when Jesus was born? Well, let me tell you, the setting of Christ's birth, it was filled with chaos. It was filled with struggle. There was a lot of darkness and despair. Think about it in Joseph and Mary's life. A surprise pregnancy. A pure virgin misunderstood by everybody else. A long journey, not in an escalade, but on a donkey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Giving birth to a baby without a midwife in a non-sanitized environment. Having to wrap him up in sheep's clothes. Swaddling cloths, dirty rags. Then there was the decree from the king. Imagine all the parents in that day. The decree, all the babies, all the baby boys born are to be killed. And we don't even have time to mention just the scandal and shame of Jesus' family tree alone. Well, that's just when he came. But what about when the prophecies were given like Isaiah chapter 9? We often quickly, as we did this morning, jump straight to verse number 6, skipping verses 1 through 5. But I encourage you to go home today and read verses 1 through 5. Because when you study the context of this chapter and all that's laid out for us, you'll find that this promise of a child coming, it came during suffering. It came during great darkness. If you have your Bibles open there in chapter 9, just look back in chapter 8, verse 22. In that verse, the earth is described as being filled with trouble and darkness, with a, with a gloom of anguish. And it keeps on with that description until we get to the opening verses of chapter 9. And chapter 9 describes the people as being distressed and heavily oppressed and walking in darkness. So, so no, Christmas, what it felt like was not walking through the mall, sipping a cup of Starbucks, whistling Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. They're oppressed. It's dark. They're miserable. You see... When we begin to understand the whole story of the Bible, we see that Jesus did not come to us on the basis of our merit. He came to us on the basis of our misery. Our misery. He came to people who were miserable. He came to people who were oppressed. He came to sinners. He came to sufferers. Emmanuel, God with us. God with us, Emmanuel. God came to sinners and sufferers. 
Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Us, who are we? Sinners, oppressed, distressed, walking in darkness, a gloom of anguish over our lives. We're anxious, we're depressed, we struggle with temptation, we live our lives hopeless. We are sinners and sufferers, yet this is who he came for. He came to us in our misery. And maybe that's you this morning. Your life is being terrorized. And Jesus says, in the midst of your terror, my answer for you is a child. My answer for you is Jesus. It's why the Christmas carol that we just sang prior to me speaking, O Holy Night, we we sing that line, the weary world rejoices. Christmas is about the weary world rejoicing. Think about that. The weary world. Not the glad world. Not the happy world. Not the I've got it made world. I don't need anything world. No. Those of you who are weary, this is what Christmas is for. Those of you who are miserable will sing, Oh, come all you faithful. It is great, but let me tell you what it's more about. It's more about you who are unfaithful. Are you miserable this morning? Are you weary of what the sin curse has brought upon your life? Suffering, anguish, depression, gloom. It is to this little crib that Jesus calls you and I who are miserable and weary to look and see. God has done for us. He gives us a glimpse of his titles describing for us who he is. And I believe what he's saying is, oh, weary one, look. You who are miserable, look. This child, the answer, he's the wonderful counselor. He's the wonderful counselor. He has the best ideas. He has the best strategies in life. He's the one who gives us true direction through his word and through his spirit, but that phrase meant a little bit more to me this weekend as I rehearsed it. He's a wonderful counselor. And you know what makes him so wonderful? Is he knows me. He knows my misery. He knows my weaknesses and my brokenness. And he cares That's what makes him so wonderful. And to a miserable world, he is inviting you to come and see just how wonderful his counsel is. We are running to anybody and everybody to try to feel this longing that we have in our life, but yet it is to him, this little baby, this little baby, whom all the counsel we ever need in life comes through. It reminds me of the passage in Hebrews where Jesus said he is not like the earthly priest 
No, he is a priest who's been touched with the same infirmities that we have, yet he did it without sin. Therefore, he knows, come boldly, come boldly to the wonderful counsel of Christ because he knows exactly what you're feeling right now. He knows exactly what you're going through right now, and he cares. This is the son who is given the wonderful counselor. And then when we see how wonderful his counsel is, we, we find him to be the mighty God, the mighty God, the, the all-powerful one, because he defeats his enemies. He defeats our enemies, and he does so decisively, right? So we can run to him, and we can hide in him, and we can, we can trust him because he's the, the mighty God. There's not anything he cannot do. There's not anything he cannot repair or redeem in your life. There's not any weakness he cannot touch. No brokenness he cannot mend. No pain he cannot heal. As we read in Luke 1 this morning, for with God all things are possible. He's the mighty God. Yes, that little baby, just imagine it. I, I, I look at Jaden sometimes and when he... I need this for just a moment, so just bear with me for a moment. When he flushes out them rank diapers, I think to myself, this is coming from a baby. A baby. But on a much more holy level, we look at everything that is, and we see that though in his humility, he's laying in a manger in a little town of Bethlehem, submitting himself to his parents. At the same time, he's holding the whole world together. A baby is doing this. He's the mighty God. But I want to tell you this morning, if the only thing I thought of him was the mighty God, I would fear him. The mighty one. The all-powerful one, the all-consuming one, the zealous one. But I don't only see him as the mighty God. I look a little further and I see him as the everlasting father. And therefore, my response to him is not just to fear, but to love him. Because he gives me counsel, and it's wonderful counsel. He cares for me. He knows everything that I'm going through. He's not abandoned me. When I feel down in the pit, he gets down in the pit with me. Oh, and he's so wonderful. He's so mighty. He's my dad. He chose me. He adopted me. He loved me with an everlasting love. And he says that nothing, nothing will ever stop him from loving me. Listen to me, Christian. The only way God would ever stop loving you is if he stopped loving Jesus. And that's never going to happen. Nothing will sever our relationship. It's there, his love for my assurance, my enjoyment. And then when I see all of these things, that, that his counsel is so wonderful and his, his power is so great in his relationship with me, he's my father, my merciful, gracious, loving dad. Then it is then I see he is peace. He is the prince of peace. He has reconciled us to God through his death, burial, and resurrection. He brings peace through his suffering. And in his meekness and lowliness, he invites us to cast all our cares upon him. 
Friend, Jesus is the God-man. He's 100% God. He's 100% man. And that's why at Christmas we celebrate this glorious incarnation. It is God coming to us, those of us who are miserable, those of us who are broken, those of us who have past that we don't want anybody else to find out about. God comes to, yes, thus, through the person of Jesus Christ. And that is why in Isaiah 7, or Isaiah 9, verse 7, he speaks of the internal nature of his kingdom, how that he will sit on the throne of David, and he will sit there forever and ever, ruling and reigning. You see, he's not just any man. This is the God-man. This is Jesus Christ. This is why in our study of the three kings in First and Second Samuel on Wednesday nights, it's the story of three kings because Saul couldn't hack it. And David, even though he's the man after God's own heart, will find out he's going to blow the whole ordeal. It's a perpetual reminder that nobody can do it except Jesus. So enter King 3, the one who in perfection will sit on the throne of David and rule and reign forever. This is who the baby is. Now remember, this is the prophecies that they received in the Old Testament. So when we come to Isaiah 9, Isaiah 7, and these others, they're, they're hearing this and they're looking ahead to when it happens. We, we have a different perspective. We look back and we see not only the prophecy, but we see its fulfillment. So there's an important phrase that I want to end on that I think wraps all of this up, and that's a phrase at the end of verse 7. That right down this point, the sure guarantee. We have the sign given. We have the son given. We have the sure guarantee. The sure guarantee. Because look at the end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. That is, he will do this. Now, why do I think that's important? Because put yourself for just a moment in Isaiah's shoes as he is writing down these things that the Holy Spirit of God is telling him to write. Imagine his thoughts as he writes down in the midst of his misery and brokenness, and weariness. Unto us a child is given. Wow. Unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and he will rule and reign after the throne of David forever. He's writing all this now. Imagine for a moment Isaiah just pausing in the midst of that and quietly asking within himself, is this true? What could this mean? Will we really have a Messiah who will do all of this for us? I mean, is this really going to happen? And then with boldness of the Spirit, he writes down the final phrase, the zeal of the Lord will do this. <laughs> the zeal of the Lord will do this. And do it. He did. His passion and zeal drove him to the virgin's womb in Bethlehem. His passion and zeal drove him to a bloody cross in Jerusalem. His passion and zeal will one day again drive him to return to this earth where he will rule and reign in his perfect kingdom forever and evermore. Christmas happened. He did it. Jesus Christ 
who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking upon him the form of a servant, and he came in the likeness of man. He did this. Christmas happened. Now, I know it's, it's on the calendar as an event that's going to happen in two weeks. But Christmas has already happened. Jesus fulfilled the promise. The guarantee was fulfilled. Now, what does that mean for us? It means the guarantee of Christmas this year is that Jesus can save you if you will come to him in faith. That's the guarantee. He saves sinners. And he saves any sinner who will trust in him for their salvation. Oh, Romans 10, 13 tells us, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Will be saved. Whoever. But if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. That is a guarantee for anyone here. Regardless of your misery and your weariness and your brokenness and your darkness and your sin, it does not matter because it is to you that the gift is given. It's not given to those who don't think they need it. It's not given to those who are righteous. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. Didn't come to those who have it all figured out. It come to those who say, I need it. I need it. And friend, if you will just look into the manger. And you will see the history of Christmas, how that he did all of this for you. Then Jesus today, right now, will become your wonderful counselor, your mighty God, your everlasting father, and your prince of peace. Now, what do I have to sign? You don't have to sign anything. How much does it cost? It costs nothing. Jesus has already paid for it. But what does he want? He wants you. That's all he wants. He wants you, your heart, your soul, your mind. He wants your faith. And I said it last week, and I'll say it every week in this series. Christmas is his story. But let his story become your story. Can you think back to a point in your life where his story became your story? If not, friend, let that start today. Trust in him. Believe in him. Follow him. Receive him. He has come for you. And this is the glory of Christmas. Let's stand together with our heads bowed and our eyes closed.